Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. If you're listening to this episode on release, then don't forget that this Saturday is the next in our Folklore Podcast Lectures series, where we will be examining in depth the topic of Victorian spiritualism with our guest speaker, Icy Sedgwick, from the fabulous Folklore Podcast. Tickets are available at bit.ly slash TFP lectures, and the event will be delivered via Zoom at 8pm UK time. In this week's episode of the Folklore Podcast, we are visiting an area with its own very distinctive folklore. The American region of Appalachia sits in the eastern United States. Its most well-known landmark is probably the Appalachian Mountains, which actually stretch from Canada down to Alabama. However, the most culturally significant part of these are the central and southern regions, from the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia down to the Great Smoky Mountains in the southwest. Folkloric roots in Appalachia are a mix of European and Native American, and particularly Cherokee. Biblical influences are quite strong, but it was the Cherokee who taught the pioneers how to use plants for medicine, and so the plant law is mostly theirs. Joining me to discuss the folklore of this region, and how they worked with it when producing their fiction book, Ghost Days, are Asher Elbine and Tiffany Turrell. Asher was responsible for the stories in this book, whilst Tiffany designed the look of the creatures, the characters, and other illustrations. The main protagonist, Anna O'Brien, is the lady that you see on the episode graphic for this episode. Stay tuned at the end of the interview, and we'll close this episode of the podcast with a reading from the first chapter of the book. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast, uh, Tiffany and Asha. Hello. Great to be here. It's lovely to speak to you both, uh, and if you're on my Patreon feed, see you both too, because here you are using the uh, wonders of video too. Uh, so b- before we start, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, to just do a little bit by way of introduction yourselves as to your background um, and why you became interested in folklore and those sorts of areas. And Tiff, ladies first. Oh, uh, hello. My name is Tiffany Terrell. Uh, I worked for about 10 years in concept art, mainly from the angle of doing creature design. Um, still always going to be a monster girl, but um, I am now a freelance illustrator. I mainly work in comic books now, but I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I'll do tabletop RPGs. Uh, I've done two full children's picture books. All of them kind of have the similar through line of working with creatures or uh, uh, mythological beings or allowing me to uh, design like a new sort of being. So uh, that's kind of my little speciality, but uh, yeah. Excellent. And Asha? Yeah, I am a, um, I'm a journalist and short fiction writer uh, based out of Texas. And uh, mostly what I write about are uh, sort of natural history of, you know, the ways that like uh, animals and environment intersect with, with human life. But um, I have a sort of side beat of writing about folklore um, because I've always really liked ghost stories. I've always really liked monsters. Um, and I have gotten increasingly interested over the years in the ways in which folklore sort of like intersects with and like reflects the history of, of 
various peoples and and times. Um, and the way that I got interested specifically in Appalachian folklore is I partially grew up um, in Atlanta, which is right below the Appalachian foothills. And so I was taking day trips with my parents, uh, or I should say my parents were taking me on day trips. I was not in the driver's seat of those discussions <laughs> um, up to uh, up to these really beautiful like waterfalls and hills and like hidden canyons. And it just really um, that landscape just really sort of like got into my bones. Um, and I've always felt like really attached to it um and so there just came a time where i was like well i wonder what kind of stories people tell here and then that was it for me and i was i was hooked and appalachian folklore is is the subject that we're going to look at today um and the springboard for that is your book ghost days uh written by asher and illustrated by tiff um which contains a lot of these kind of creatures and pieces of lore from the Appalachian area that you're referring to. How did you both come together to work on this project? Well, so, so what happened was um, this book originally started out as a a short story concept that I was working on that way, way back in, in high school of all things. Um, And I wrote one or two, I had this idea of it as like a, as like one of these sort of ongoing uh, serials like you know Conan the Barbarian or something where you know Conan shows up and he he does some stuff and then like he disappears and then the next door he showed up somewhere else um, but I, so I wrote a couple of the I wrote a couple of of stories about Anna O'Brien the Wandering Witch and then you know life happened and I had to kind of put it aside um, and what ended up happening was I ended up having to get hip surgery um, And as a result of that, as I was sort of recovering, I was like, okay, I want to do a creative project because I know that when I get better, I'm going to have a lot of energy and I want, uh, I want something to put it toward. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take these Anna O'Brien stories and I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to put together a book. And I was thinking it would be really cool if they would be illustrated. And that was when I thought about Tiff, who is somebody I've sort of known from the internet for a little while. We go back to the old DeviantArt days together. Um... And I was like, yeah, which is a real blast from the past. And um, I just reached out and I, I was asked if, if she would be interested in, in maybe doing some work on this. And I, I sent her the story and uh, things just kind of snowballed from there. And what did you think, Tiff, when you received it? Honestly, uh, I think I, I'm pretty sure I even told Asher at the time it was one of the best prompts and best like random submissions that I had ever received. I got really excited about the stories, essentially. Um, uh, Asher knows me by now when I get really excited about stories, I just start immediately drawing stuff, like no discussion whatsoever. And I kind of, uh, I started drawing the hags. Uh, <laughs> I kind of jumped the gun a little bit, but it was, it was, I was so engaged with the, I don't know, the tactileness of the world, the, and through the, the perspective of a very narrow lens. Like I, I grew up in Texas. So the, uh, the Appalachian folklore is still kind of like, was like a little sidestep, just a, a slight remove from like the stories that I grew up around, but it still kind of tapped into a lot of the same, uh, uh, that kind of like dirty mucky, uh, are we, are we, are we, are we, are we ready to use the word, uh, folk, uh, folk horror yet? Um, Yes, go but, for um, it. <laughs> folk horror. Um, I was super into it at the time, and when, so when Osher submitted the stories to me, it was just like, oh, well, this is everything I want to like dig into right now. Um, 
it was every sort of like like prompt and uh, 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 sorry, losing words. <laughs> it was kind of um, it. It was just a really exciting uh, vein for me to dip into, and, um, and it was. Sorry, it was originally no, was, I, I hired you for the cover, right? It was the cover, yeah, and then we started talking about doing more from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It very quickly uh, snowballed out of control and became even more fun. But um, oh, yeah, yeah, it was initially just it was initially just for the cover. Before we go any further, we should probably because we have people from all over the world that listen to the podcast. Just kind of do a quick Appalachia one hundred and one, and and make sure that everybody knows that area that we're talking about geographically uh, and what that area represents sure um so the sort of quickest way of, of doing this i think is the appalachian mountains um are part of this very old geological unit um that runs from the sort of like along north south along the east coast of the, of the united states from uh sort of like Alabama, Georgia, all the way up to Maine. And then like parts of that geologic unit go like pop up also in places like Scotland. So it's, it's a really, um, it's really long. It's incredibly old uh, sort of like areas of rock, even though the mountains themselves have like gone up and down a couple of times throughout prehistory. Um, and it's, it's this really beautiful sort of like temperate wooded, area of like uh rolling of, of rolling hills and and waterfalls and streams they're more salamanders in appalachia than literally anywhere else on the planet um and it is also uh to its it's sort of like the the great misfortune of the region and the people who have lived there um it's incredibly rich in mineral and sort of like uh, vegetable resources uh, which has led to a history of, of really vicious exploitation um, to the modern day. And so, what what are the what is the basis for the belief system or the the mythology rather than the folklore, perhaps, of that area? Where does it come from as, as a root source? Yeah, well, so one of the things um, about Appalachian folklore is that it is where you've got a couple of different sort of cultural backgrounds that are, that are colliding. Like um, obviously there are, you know, there, there were peoples like the Cherokee nation that were, you know, made their, had their traditional home in Appalachia um, and and still maintain um, through really the skin of their teeth, like still maintain some, some of their traditional land um, around the, uh, you know, around North Carolina, Tennessee area. Um, and then there were, you know, the sort of like when, when the, when the Anglos came, you know, a lot of the Anglos that came, some of them were from, um, some of them were from England proper, but others were, you know, from sort of like the borderlands of like Scotland and some of them were Irish and, you know, the, the, the phrase Scots Irish gets thrown around a lot. And then of course there was the slave trade, which was bringing in peoples from, you know, various parts of Africa. And then even later than that, during the great migrations, you had people from Europe, um, sort of like mainland Europe coming in looking for work. So there's just this incredible like stew of folklore that all sort of like, uh, uh, it's, it's not really a melting pot. It's more of a salad, really. You just, or a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's true anywhere, isn't it? I suppose if you follow migratory routes and, and you look at where people traveled, then you can see the transmission of stories from one place to another. 
uh, and how they get adapted and adopted in those in those other countries when they get there. So is there this kind of um, big cultural adoption within the area? So do we find that we've got Cherokee stories that are then taking on aspects of other areas as, as those people are coming in? Well, sort of to a degree. I mean, one of the, one of the actually really good examples of, of cultural adoption is actually the Br'er Rabbit stories, yeah. um, such as are in that Disney movie that the Disney would like to pretend never happened. Song of the South. Uh, you know, the, the stories about Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox and, and Br'er Bear those are stories that are uh, essentially like adaptations or, or sort of retellings of, of often like Cherokee stories where, you know, the Cherokee hold that, you know, rabbit is a trickster and that got transmitted to um, both free and sort of like enslaved uh, black Americans. Um, and then eventually sort of transmitted to white Americans as a, as a black thing. Um, and then in terms of talking about um things like the the the, the Nunehi, which are um, essentially like uh, they're they're not fairies I want to be very clear about this they're not fairies but they are they they hold a sort of like equivalent role um, as uh, it's kind of like elves and fae in in Britain and it seems very much like some of those some of those sort of anglo ideas about what the fae are kind of like crept into a lot of the like current accounts that you see about uh, like the Nunehi or things like that. So there is, there is, there are all these sort of like little, little cross currents where, for example, the, um, the, the great spirit uh, Shulakala shows up in ghost days as, you know, he's this sort of like Lord of the hunt figure and is a, is a, is a Cherokee, is a, is a part of Cherokee cosmology. Um, But the places where he's identified with in, in Appalachia are now called things like the devil's courthouse or, um, or, or, you know, things like that. Like, like the, the, the sort of cultural memory is still there. It's just that the names have sort of changed in some yeah. cases. Yeah. Now, um, although we're not talking predominantly about your book, that is, as I said earlier, you know, a good springboard to a lot of this stuff. So um, just, just to kind of put this in context a bit, Tiff, can, mm-hmm. you, can you explain a little bit about um, how this book is constructed? So Anna O'Brien is the central character in all of these stories. Now, at the beginning of the book, a certain trade-off occurs that then um, leads to how this character develops through the stories and the kinds of things that she does. So can you just give, without putting too many spoilers in, uh, a little bit of context as as to how this book sits within the folklore? Um, Anna O'Brien is a, she's a young woman who is of, uh, half Cherokee descent living in, um, is it North Carolina where she starts out? Sort of North, North Carolina, Carolina, Tennessee border area. Yeah. Ca- I don't think you ever like put a specific like, like uh, Google latitude on it, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, she kind of uh, just, she's just out there living her life doing her. And she, uh, yeah, without getting too many spoilers, uh, she has a bad time. And um, because of uh, paranormal uh, uh, interference, she eventually has to leave her little holler and take to the road. Um, she gains a new power as a conjure woman and kind of takes to the road, um, having various adventures 
and sort of moving through the landscape and encountering uh, different historical events, um, but always kind of through the lens of she's just there to do uh, witch business. <laughs> and so kind of has to like navigate uh, both what uh, humans are up to and whatever these spiritual forces or mythological forces or these creatures uh, are, how they, how they are interacting with the people there. And uh, it dips into a lot of like, like real historical events uh, of early 1900s Appalachia. And uh, yeah, her adventures are ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, the witchiness of this obviously plays quite a big part in the in the stories in various ways. Can you just compare the the motif of a conjure woman against perhaps what we might see as a cunning woman in in Western witch folklore or, or those kind of other similar personifications of it? Yeah, well, they're they're very similar, um, and there are um, the 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 even the term cunning woman does sometimes get used in like the sort of Pennsylvania Dutch country of the Appalachians. Um, it's not really a Southern Appalachian term quite so much, um, but conjure women are you know Appalachian folklore has and, and sort of Appalachian traditional folk culture. Uh, in in the various peoples that practice various facets of it, from you know the sort of like Scots Irish to the to um, you know sort of uh, free black uh, settlements to, to the Cherokee themselves, they all have this like really ambivalent relationship with witches, right? Because you know you've got the conjure woman who is the person who is practicing sort of traditional medicine, traditional plant based medicine, um, you know. Uh, delivering babies, that sort of thing. And then you've got the witches who are, you know, they'll, they'll spoil your milk or, or, or they'll, um, they'll make it so your gun won't shoot straight or they'll, they'll, you know, throw witch balls everywhere and, and sicken you. Um, and like, basically everyone is in agreement that there are, are in, in their, from their various traditions that there are basically, there are witches who you can go to for help and there are witches who are dangerous, but you also don't want to piss off the witches who you can go to for help because they themselves can also be quite dangerous. Um, so one of the things that really I found fascinating about digging into this sort of like witch folklore is um, Appalachia is, is one of the places in America where you have really active stories about witchcraft pretty well into even in some places like the 20th century. Um, and, and there is, again, there's all this sort of like cultural hybridization between, um, you know, you know, the witches in, in new England were not changing skins in the way that like Appalachian witches did, or were not even like um, crawling out of their skins in the way that like, the hags of like the low country were doing um, and, and sort of in Appalachia as well. Um, and of course, like the, the sort of witch floor of the Cherokees like gets brought in into that as well. It's just, it's a really interesting sort of um, dynamic kind of magical world that exists in like the, in the Southern mountains. Uh, and do you find that those, that the witchcraft still plays some kind of role in, in the Appalachian area. I'm thinking like in Western cultures in the late 20th and going into the 21st centuries, we see things like the development of Wicca 
um, as mm -hmm. as a witchcraft path, for example. Do you find similar things happening still there as well? Yeah, there's certainly been a, a massive sort of cultural reclamation project um, that's been happening. A lot of it, you know, there's there's if you if you want to talk about Wicca, like there's a lot of Wiccans like hanging out in Asheville um, and and selling uh, selling crystals and things like that. Um, but there are also in more sort of like traditionalist um, people who are who are, who really have made an effort to sort of like bring back some of that traditional knowledge or reconstruct some of that traditional knowledge um, outside of the lens of, you know, a witch is somebody who like uh, pisses on a Bible and then like makes a deal with Satan. Uh, those stories generally seem to be very much in the past, like in the ways that people talk about this sort of thing. And the hags you mentioned earlier play quite a big role in, in, the book in some sections uh, and they're an interesting set of characters um what's the role tiff of the of the hag within within this culture um there's there's kind of like in the same in the same way asha was discussing the hag is a little bit more of a background figure. It can be anybody in your village. It could be anybody in your community, but it, they're kind of like uh, a figure to account for uh, mishaps or bad weather or uh, just like, like bad circumstances in general. And uh, in our, but also like something kind of at the periphery of reality. Um, so it's, there's always a, there's, there's, there's always gatherings going on in the woods, in the deep woods of, at certain sites that have bad energy. Um, so we have several uh, hag gatherings and ghost days, but I, even just like as a personal story, that I feel like that kind of like extends into a lot of just like common parlance of uh, don't go into the woods at night. The Satanists mm -hmm. are out there. Like it, it's very easily turned into like a, just a general like cautionary tale of, uh, there's just bad stuff going on out there. Don't don't talk to them. <laughs> don't talk to strangers, kids. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and that's an important so, role of folklore, isn't it? At many times, is is it is a cautionary tale. It's it's used as a warning quite often. So I I, I can appreciate why that would be the case. Your um oh, absolutely your your uh, design of the hags is is um is really quite very good. I'm searching for the right word because it's, it's unhuman, perhaps, is, is one way of looking at them. They, they do come across as kind of non-humans uh, in, in the, the way that they're designed. And I love the design of them. I must admit, they're brilliant. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Did you draw on something particular when you designed them? I mean, you have a note, don't you, in the back of the book that says um, sometimes when things don't quite go the way you intend them to, it's better to just start again. Um, is that because you went through different iterations um, and drew on different aspects, or did you just use your own imagination for the design? Um, with the hags in particular, I feel like I was, um, the hags in Ghost Days in particular were kind of the culmination of a lot of uh, folklore beings that I had been working on around that time. Um, I had been doing a bunch of um, iterations on various uh, English myths um, 
and in particular had been focusing on witches and hags and spooky beings leering out from dark trees and stuff like that. So it was definitely in my wheelhouse uh, for the time. So humanoid figures just slightly stylized in a way that makes them a little unsettling. It makes them, uh, makes you kind of regard them in a different way that, that they, but they have a physicality that is just close enough to human, but the setting is all wrong. The shapes are all wrong. The eyes are glowing and terrible. So like, that's, uh, like I said, it was very much something that I was kind of like, I was working in that vein of like spooky folk horror. I was really on that kick at the time, but, um, and I kind of wanted to extend that to the Appalachian hags um, as kind of like that sort of like that through line of uh, mythological, you know, just how we, the stories came even to Appalachia. Um, I would even say, though, I, I feel like, <laughs> Osher, the first uh, thing that you got really excited about, I was working on the English Folklore Project and I did a, a iteration on the Black Dog of Bungay. Is that how yep. you say it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's only read the word, never heard it spoken aloud. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that kind of like steered even more into the uh, Anna O'Brien pantheon because we also have a, a, a black dog. Yes, um, and obviously I was delighted to find that you do include a black dog. Yeah. <laughs> people know that is one of my main areas of research. Is the black dog a common theme in the Appalachian area, though, or is that one specific story that you're drawing on there? So it's interesting because you would think it would be because of all how many people from um, the sort of like British Isles came to Appalachia. Um, and there are certainly a lot of stories of, of sort of ghost dogs or graveyard dogs that are not, that are not specifically identified as being black dogs. There are, I think there are one or two from Virginia, um, but they're, they're just ghost dogs that are black, not black dogs, if that distinction makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I kind of feel like it ought to be there. So I put it in <laughs> basically. And when you're writing these kinds of creatures, and also, Tiff, when you're designing them, are you having to find a balance between what has been traditionally described, what has come before, and what you want to include in your own descriptions? Are, are your descriptions and your drawings becoming an amalgamation of your own ideas and what originally was there? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll speak to this just from a writing perspective, and I'm very curious to hear what, what Tiff has to say about this. But um, I, it, it's hard when you're writing about folklore. Sorry, if you can hear rustling, that's my, my bearded dragon is, is pacing a little bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard when you're, when you're writing about folklore, because especially when you're writing about folklore um, from people who are around and, and their beliefs are not, um, how to put this? Basically, it's, it, I, you never want to be dismissive or, or take too many liberties with somebody's beliefs. Um, and so the, the balance I tried to strike in Ghost Days, writing about 
some of the various entities or, or monsters, a couple of which I just straight up made up um, in, in sort of like reference to the work of people like Manly Wade Wellman. Um, so, you know, when, when you're making up a monster that seems like it should belong in the Appalachians, you're, you're fine. It's just, you just generate a fun idea, a fun character for, you know, your witch to bounce off of. And that's, that's done. Um, but when dealing with something like the black dog or, you know, the Raven mocker, which is a, a sort of, witch spirit um, from the from the Cherokee tradition, I tried really hard to to find something um, like a way of describing uncanniness that I had not previously seen done anywhere um, or a way of, of describing them that would make them feel to me um, sort of fresh and, 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 and terrifying. Um, but that really dug deeply into like what are the kinds of stories that people tell so like with black dogs people tell all kinds of stories about you know the dog is there and then it's not there the size is sort of like fungible um it's really associated with graveyards and 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 places that are um you know where where blood has been shed and so the dog that shows up in uh, and, and also black dogs are, you know, have, have sort of like, la- you know, latterly been associated with depression. So when the dog shows up in ghost days, I am trying to like draw all of those cultural threads in, but also present it in a way that that feels like, oh, this is really fresh and sort of immediate. Um, and that's a really it's a really tough balance to strike. But, you know, when when in doubt, I always try and go back to the traditional, you know, narratives and like draw from those. And Tiff, when you're designing these, how are you balancing that kind of original concept against your own? <laughs> I think uh, balance is definitely the uh, key word. I, I mean, I'm the type of person that can really spin myself out into a lot of different directions with regards to research. Uh, one of my favorite professors uh, back in, I mean, like, like God sent me in front of Wikipedia. Let's go. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite professors, uh, I remember like one of the things that's like emblazoned into my brain forever now is uh, he said, you have to become a, if you're going to be an illustrator, you have to become a mini expert on everything you draw. It doesn't mean you are the expert. So you do have to put down the research and actually do the drawings. Um, so like, like I had said, I was working on a uh, an English folklore project that was just like, like focusing on uh, the spooky stuff, the witches, the goblins in your chimneys, that sort of thing. And uh, I was really, uh, I, f- I found a new love for digging into research that wasn't just, uh, here's a spaceship that looks cool. Here's a dinosaur that I drew sp- uh, specifically from the skeleton, you know, like, like that kind of like... Uh, I, I enjoyed uh, essentially the world building aspect of really, really digging into what uh, costumes from specific regions and histories uh, looked like and trying to kind of whittle that down into an illustration without completely driving myself nuts. Um, <laughs> so I think, but I also think that it's worthwhile to, uh, especially in stories that are, really, really, uh, you get a lot of different variation and you get people telling completely different, coming at things from completely different angles. Uh, in one, it's a giant horse monster and another, it's a guy with no head. Like, 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 uh, I think that there's, 
a degree of synthesizing that's going to have to come come through either way because we live in this period in time and only have these historical resources and kind of the narrow lens of, inter of interpreting folklore as is. So I think that there's going to have to be editing either way. But um, I mean, at the end of the day, like I'm a trained concept artist, so I do just want things to look really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and there were, I, I, I want to say too, there were definitely, there was a real iterative process, even as we were working on mm. the book together. Um, where, where some of the spirit, some of the conceptions of the spirits that I had ended up being like very different um, from the sort of like final illustrations um, that we went with. So there is, there is even just, or, or notably at one point, one of the monsters uh, I, I got an early look at and was like, this is really good, but you need to give, you need, you should give them human eyes. Uh, and uh that really, I think, really tied the design together. Just it made awful. it so much worse. <laughs> so much worse. Just horrible knowing human eyes. Print, print it. That's face. it. Yeah. Um, and but, publish. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so there is, there is, I think, something um, because in a way, like what what the whole process is is the whole process of, of telling a story anyways is uh selecting what parts of the story you want to tell like that's what how folklore even gets transmitted um so it's not we we are not so much i mean speaking for myself cr trying to create like the definitive take on any of these ideas well, I so am. Much as, I well, am. okay <laughs> <laughs> i was not trying to create the definitive take so much as as, a, as offer a suggestion of something that uh, another way of that might be added to the tradition and that hopefully other people will springboard off of tiffany's work of course is final immutable and finished that, and cannot be it. iterated upon that's the creature no more no more art art's over the final <laughs> word is <this> spoken. <laughs> so you you discuss monsters a fair bit here um and and every culture has its own inherent set of monsters within its folklore uh, and the Appalachian area obviously is is no exception so give, give us a brief rundown when you say the monsters or the creatures that inhabit that particular culture what really represents Appalachian creature law there's oh, there's a lot I mean so there is there's sort of traditional uh, there there are Cherokee monsters like um, Spearfinger, which is a, the, the sort of stone, uh, stone-skinned witch uh, who likes to eat livers. There's the Raven Mocker, which is, a, a, like I said, a sort of a witch spirit that um, flies around, like, stealing gears from sick people's lives. There are the sort of, like, um, the, the more, I would say, sort of anglicized monsters, um, some of which are, are just sort of, like, traditional spooky stories like Taily Poe is of course a, a favorite one. Um, you know, a, a, a varmint that uh, a hunter eats his tail and he comes back for revenge. Um, and uh, you know, there, and then there are the sort of like stories that, that get associated in later, like Bigfoot, um, which is of course originally a Pacific Northwest piece of folklore, but is now I think pretty um, has gotten pretty thoroughly tied in with, uh, with Appalachia as well. Um and there are there are also um, things like the wampus cat, which um, the the provenance of which is a, is is 
to me, I, I put a lot of research into this and I still can't nail down quite how and where that idea came from. But basically this, this big uh, sort of awful skunk smelling, screaming monster cat that seems to be uh, a sort of um, gloss on like uh, mountain lions, which are of course used to be historically present in Appalachia, but also is in some strange way connected to the, the story of the, the Ewa, which is a, a Cherokee spirit of madness and fear and it's not clear whether the wampus mat, whether the wampus cat, uh, is the Awa or or uh, is the result of somebody attempting to fight the Awa. Like there's one of those places where this sort of like cross cultural knowledge got really garbled, um, and there seemed to have been a, like a couple of different places where uh, various versions went off in completely divergent directions. I was gonna, I was going to ask you that is it, is it the case then that there is, that there are cultural parallels with similar creatures to the wampus cat elsewhere well there's certainly um it's strange because there are certainly stories in a lot of places of of you know alien big cats um or, or sort of like frightening large cats um what's strange in in appalachia is that it is a little strange to have a monster cat when panthers or you know what are what are called panthers but are again like you know mountain lions or cougars or catamounts or the many various names of it already exist and are are you know dangerous animals that are that are well known if also like slightly mythologized um and it it seems like a lot of the stories about wampus cats start getting more prominent um just from what i can tell later in the 20th century after panthers have been somewhat extirpated from the Appalachian mountains. Um, I could be wrong about that. The scholarship is just not there that I've been able to find. But if any folklorist wants to write a PhD on this, I would love to read that dissertation. <laughs> like someone just sit down and untangle this once and for all. I didn't, I didn't realize that the, the wampus cat had a, a, a skunk stinkiness to it because that is one of the attributes i'm i come more from like the cryptozoology uh side of things uh <laughs> but uh that's one of the attributes given to the skunk ape which is found in like the northern i think that's like mainly in ohio where the skunk ape is quote endemic but yeah it it's definitely sounds like that's an attribute of like mountain lions went extinct and all of the attributes of uh, that mythological creature just kind of like disseminated into any other spooky thing you might see in the woods. <laughs> so the, the skunk ape as well, I think ties in with the kind of Bigfoot mythology in some respects as well, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there are a lot of local variants of, of Bigfoot. Um, there would be actually, I think, really, if someone wanted to do a sort of like crypto ecological study of how Bigfoot folklore spread across the United States and sort of like speciated in various places, um, that would also be a really interesting dissertation that someone can write. So I can read it. Um, Bigfoot does not appear in ghost days and probably <laughs> will not appear in ghost days because um, no, the the sort of conceit of the of the world of the book is essentially. Um, it takes place in a historical Appalachia that also where the folklore also happens to be real. And those two things 
um, sort of intersect with each other in, in various ways. But what that does mean is that stories that were, would not have been current in 1920s Appalachia are not going to be making, probably not going to like make an appearance. So the Appalachian area, stereotypically, am I right in thinking, because, hey, I'm in the UK, what do I know? Um, sure. Stereotypically is represented these days as um, an area of some poverty, but historically, is that actually the case? Depend. It, so that is a very interesting question, because it, once you start asking that, you have to ask, what poverty means. So previously, in, in the sort of early history of the, uh, the Anglo colonization of America um, and, and Appalachia in particular, um, a lot of the smallholders who were going out into the forest were very, it was an incredibly cash poor economy, um, which is one of the reasons that, um, which is one of the reasons that, that sort of like brewing of alcohol became as big a deal as it did because alcohol could function as a sort of like de facto currency. Um, speaking very loosely, all of this is, is, is somewhat complex. And I, I would, I would send people to the book ramp hollow um, as a, as a good sort of like economic history of Appalachia. But um, a lot of what people were doing was there were, there were these sort of small farming communities uh, or sort of small hold farms. And then people were also relying on the forest um, so nobody had any money, but people tended to get by like pretty well. Um, and then what ended up happening was, you know, there was the enclosure movement in, in Britain, of course. And then over the course of American history, there started to be more and more sort of like enclosure of, um, of the sort of like Appalachian commons. Um, and that really kicked off a lot faster when, uh, you know, after the Civil War or prior to the Civil War, there had been a lot of, of sort of like mining uh sort of like mining experts coming into Appalachia and kind of like kicking various rocks and and thoughtful ways um but then the civil war broke out and like everyone had to like put that aside for a while and then as soon as reconstruction started in the like by the 1880s there were a ton of like mining and lumber people coming into Appalachia and just selling stealing everything that wasn't like wasn't nailed down and like prying up a lot of things that were um, and so suddenly, you know, the people who were previously relying on this like really rich forest as an ecological base to supplement their, their farming, um, were, if they were, even if they weren't getting kicked off the land, uh, legally or illegally, um, the forest was like increasingly getting cut down and people couldn't make a living anymore. So they started taking jobs as lumber people, cutting down the forest, which of course was the thing that other people were relying on. So there's this really ugly, vicious cycle um, that got even worse once the mining jobs came in. And so eventually you get to this point where um, Appalachia is treated very much like essentially a colonized, like a colonial extraction economy within the larger sort of economy of the United States. So in much the same way that, you know, you look at the sort of what we call the developing world, um, where you where you have these economies that were um, essentially pillaged and, and people are very poor. That is essentially what happened in Appalachia. And it is why, um, in much the same way that when you pillage a place, you have to come up with reasons why the people you pillaged deserved it. Um, 
it's one reason why why stereotypes about Appalachians is stupid and inbred and and you know they're poor because they have a cultural problem, not because you know rich people came in and like bought up all the land and cut down all the trees and ripped out all the coal. Um, so so in in many ways, like Appalachians, like Appalachian people almost became um, some of the closest that like white people in America come to being racialized as being in, in much the same way as there, there was this sort of like racial process that happened to turn people from Africa into, you know, black people, which were, uh, you know, a subservient um, sort of like underclass. The same sort of thing kind of happened in Appalachia to a lesser degree, I would say. And there are other places around the world as well where we, again, we see this similar kind of parallel happening, aren't there? So does that mean that the transmission of some of that indigenous folklore for want of a better term and the recording of some of that history just becomes lost or becomes diluted at that point well there's certainly a lot of it that's been lost one of the actually one of the reasons that appalachian folklore is as relatively well known as it is oddly enough is because um coming into the 20th century there was this sort of reclamation project by both by people in Appalachia, but also like largely driven by outside cultural forces where there was this idea that Appalachia was simultaneously like, you know, this, this brutish, uh, like poor area, but it's also where the genuine American tradition and like genuine American folk culture lives. So, you know, you got all of these, these sort of like folk, you know, folk song recorders and, and, and folklore recorders who like swept into the mountains to kind of try and, and record these stories. But mostly the stories that they recorded came from, um, you know, came from Anglo Appalachians. Uh, there was, I would be remiss not to mention, of course, James Mooney, um, who is the author of a very famous work of ethnography on um, Cherokee cosmology and uh, traditions. But he's kind of like, it's kind of, it's him. It's various people coming in and recording uh, witch stories. And then nobody talked to black Appalachians at all, basically. Um, So when it came to researching folklore of black Appalachians, uh, it's really hard because a lot, you know, there are, there are plenty of books about white Appalachian folklore. There's a couple of books about, you know, the, the traditions of, of the Cherokee nation, uh, but nobody was talking to the, the sort of free, the, the freedmen or um, the sort of like free black enclaves. And so there is, I think, quite a lot that's been lost just because the people who were, who were so busy trying to save the traditional American uh, folk traditions were really only actually interested in one set of American folk traditions and didn't think the other one was all that interesting or worthy of preservation. So where is Appalachian now compared to that? Are we seeing uh, a different set of beliefs, a different law in the area now? Uh, Are we seeing the same or different kind of um, problems or, or battles going on, for example? So, I, I want to speak somewhat carefully here because I am, I, I write about Appalachia from a position of a loving visitor. Um, I have never lived in Appalachia. Um, and while I, I draw very, very much from people who, who have lived there and do live there, um, I don't want to speak out of turn about the dynamics of, of a place I don't live. I will say 
that with the advent of places like, uh, you know, with, with the advent of the internet, uh, there is a sort of great flattening of, of folklore um, across the country more generally. Um, but that also means that, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm about some of these more traditional uh, folkloric figures that I think some of these stories um, have been maybe emphasized to a wider audience because people living in Appalachia are excited to share them. And at the same time, you know, people, Bigfoot doesn't originate in Appalachia and as a minor purist who doesn't actually get to have an opinion about this, but I don't think Bigfoot belongs in Appalachia, but if you look at how people tell stories, Bigfoot is now a part of like the Appalachian sort of like folklore fauna. And that's probably not going to change. Um, so I think that like you, Mothman, anybody? <laughs> say what? Mothman, anybody? Yeah. Or Moth Mothman is a great example, actually. Tiffany, why don't you talk about Mothman? I've been talking to <laughs> uh, He rules. Um, he's yeah, big and strong. Was, and he's my friend. Yes. He's, he's big and strong and he is my friend. He's real like anime. Um, <laughs> uh, it, was it 64 to 65? Mm-hmm. Uh, about 18 months, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, lots of people seeing a uh, flying man with glowing red eyes. Uh, there's a lot of uh, it, it, the, the, the paranormal flap, as it called, kind of increased in frequency. People were claiming that they suddenly were telekinetic. There were UFO sightings. There, were a, there was a lot of strange activity going around. A lot of this is just like teenagers uh, out in the woods seeing weird stuff and spooking each other. Uh, an owl. Likely. And an owl, yeah. Uh, what is what are some of the other ones? A sandhill crane, a big moth, um, just like a straight up, uh, just a really big moth that is that we have we have to find him. But um, <laughs> I think we're putting out of it just like a really big lamp. Just yeah. put it out, stake it out, see what <laughs> season shows up. Point Pleasant is about, the lamp headquarters. <laughs> there seems to be something about owls getting a bit of a bad rap in these kinds of things, though, isn't there? Because the uh, the um, Hopkins will. Goblin mm-hmm. case. I was going to say Hop- Hopkin- Hopkinsville goblins as well, like the that's big glowing eyes. People are terrified of big glowing eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Although those I... guys actually shot them with shotguns and had a siege with alien fairy creatures. So, I mean, who's to say uh, the owls finally took a stand, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've certainly, I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time outside when, when possible. Um, and I've definitely gone into <laughs> old barns and, uh, and disturbed and, and been disturbed by, uh, mutual disturbances, uh, between me and like barn owls. Um, and they're really alarming. I, I love them. They're wonderful animals, but when you're not expecting to run into one, they're really alarming. Um, and, and I think that, one of the one of the things that I think sometimes people the thing that people always say about Bigfoot is like, well, Bigfoot must be based on a real creature. It's like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that the real creature is a is a is a giant, uh, you know, cursorial ape. <laughs> that just means that you maybe you, maybe you actually did just see a bear like running off on its hind legs, which is a thing that they do. Maybe you did just see an owl. in North America today. Yeah. <laughs> so Tiffany, you also don't live in the Appalachian area. So have you found that your views on that culture have changed or been shaped by the research that you had to put in when you were working 
uh, on Ash's book, for example. Oh, for sure. I mean, so I grew up in Texas, uh, moved to California uh, to do, like I said, video game concept art stuff. Um, I have never been to Appalachia. Um, I, I was hoping to go this year, actually, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that whole happened. Well, hmm, here we are. There's but, always um, next year. Look, those mountains, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> I know. Hopefully. Hopefully, as far as I know, I'm keeping tabs. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like it's, I mean, I feel like, like, like I said before, like, I, I grew up in suburban Texas in a place that was very, like, the oldest building in town, which is probably from 1945. Like it's very, very post-war suburbia. Um, but every now and again, I, like people in my family would have like weird little turns of phrase or just like bizarre connections that they would make. Um, the one that comes to mind for, first and foremost is I guess um, if it's raining and the sun is shining, that mm -hmm. means the devil is beating his wife. And this is like an old, old Southern thing that I have never been able to quite place, but it was always so baffling for me growing up to hear these strange little like, like quirks and quips and turns of phrase. Cause even as like, a, like if you're like eight years old and you're like, that doesn't make sense. But, um, so listen, digging into the Appalachian stories, it kind of reminds me a lot of those sorts of like old wives tales and just turns of phrase and colloquialisms that kind of like would enter my reality and kind of pass through it without any sort of explanation whatsoever. And I feel like even digging into the research just like from afar really kind of like helped me build much more of not only just a historical idea of the material reality of the people that were there, but also like the, the perspective going through deep time of how much of a melt, melting, melting salad <laughs> uh, you're dealing with just because like it is so many things all at once constantly rehashed and iterated over and over again so it brought a lot of context like even for like my own weird little southern upbringing so <laughs> so just to round this off um i i threw this open to people on my patreon feed uh and said did anybody want to ask you anything or did anyone have any comments on on this particular area um, and I did have a couple, uh, one, one from, uh, Roseanne who, if I memory serves me correctly is, or lives in the Appalachian area. Um, and she said that she, she very much had a, a memory, um, of listening to murder ballads told by her grandparents. Um, one of which was about, uh, Will of the Worcester, um, which she remembers ran along some lines of um, I'm the will of the Worcester and you are the one I'm after. You better run. You better run. She, wow, I've wonders, never whether heard of this, she wonders whether this is connected to Willow the Wisp in some way. I've never heard of this, but it very well could be. Um, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I, I feel bad because I don't have anything more to say about that. But like, it certainly would make sense, again, with the sort of like Anglo roots of a lot of Appalachian uh, uh, folklore that that could very well have come over. Can, can you speak to the topic of murder ballads? Um, uh... Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, there are, 
well, so a, a lot of um, murder ballads are not a specifically Appalachian thing, but they are um, very much associated with it, partially because a lot of the um, the sort of song catchers that went into the mountains were um, mostly going into the Appalachian mountains and not looking for sort of traditional songs in other places when they started out. Um, but a lot of the murder ballads are um, at least in some ways descended from the sorts of ballads collected by, I forget his first name, but child. Um, the ballads that he was collecting, a lot of them are, are stories of sort of like murder and mayhem and, and Matty Groves is a really good, uh, is one of my favorite examples of, um, you know, a, a boy who, who jumps into the wrong bed and, and gets punished for it. Um, and so uh, it, it became this like this storytelling tradition that that crossed over the Atlantic. Um, and so ballads became one of the um, one of the sort of types of songs that, that are very common um, in Appalachia. And they're again, they mostly record the ones that aren't derived from from sort of like British songs of the British Isles record like local incidents of, of murder and mayhem. Um, as the good Lord intended. So there, and, and, you know, with the sort of like Appalachian folk revival of the, uh, I would go say starting in the sixties and just plugging along until today, um, you get a fair amount of people who are constantly like taking spins at, at redoing murder ballads, uh, either traditional ones or rewriting them um, or, or making new ones in the tradition of the old ones. And those have sort of even moved into like Nashville style country where, mm -hmm. you know, you have stories where uh, usually instead of, instead of the man murdering the woman, uh, the woman is the one who has, who has murdered the man or ha is singing about having been murdered by the man. So there, there's still, there's still a thriving part of American culture, um, which is great. I love a good murder ballad. <laughs> you can't go wrong with a good murder ballad. So I think we'd better go back to Roseanne now and, and say that we all want to know more about this, whatever it yes, is. Yes, very much so. That she needs to look into it and, and tell us all about it. So that's great. It's great to turn up things, actually, that nobody has come across in that way because now we have something that warrants further investigation. Uh, and the other comment I had was, was from Kim, who uh, is from the southern U.S. Georgia area, or, or was at the time that she was speaking about, um, who remembers uh, being told ghost stories on the porch by her mother during summer thunderstorms. Um, one of which was about old bloody Rawhide, who uh -huh. she, in her mother's version of the story, she says, was the ghost of a murderous trapper who lived in the shadows to get you. And she wonders, is this an Appalachian version of Rawhead or Bloody Bones? Almost certainly. Um, I, again, I have not heard the Trapper variant, um, but Rawhead and Bloody Bones or Old Rawhide um, does pop up in ghost story collections uh, from the Appalachians occasionally. Um, again, a really good example of like a, a sort of uh, an Anglo tradition story that um, either came over directly across the Atlantic or um, sort of sprouted independently from the same sort of cultural roots. Uh, that one is generally, I think, a little bit less commonly 
told in short story collections just mostly i think because there's usually an emphasis on the more like endemic appalachian stories rather than the ones that like very clearly came over um but my guess is that if you were walking around the appalachians in the 1800s talking to people you would have heard quite a lot of stories that you could probably trace directly back to the british isles it's they're all good examples aren't they these of again these different variations of of common stories that that pop up in different areas and it's one of the things i think that makes folklore generally so interesting is is just seeing the way that these stories develop and and move around and and take on their own different localized versions so go on I was just going to say, yeah, well, one of the things that I, I really like about folklore is that folklore is like, like studying folklore is like looking at trace fossils of ideas um, in that, you know, the actual, the, the actual flight of ideas or the ways that ideas move can never really be traced. You can only, you can only, or you, you can't, you can never see it. You can only sort of see um, what has happened in the wake of, of these sort of like changing narratives. Um, but you also get these sort of things that get frozen or, or, or sort of like washed up um, on a cultural tide somewhere and like sort of left alone. And the thing that makes Appalachia so rich in, in folklore is just because there are, have been so many cultural tides that have washed those particular mountains. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that people tend to like looking at Appalachian folklore is because you can make all of these different connections and sort of find these little, even just as we've been talking about this, you can find these little, these, these other little nuggets of things that got washed in um, like uh, Will of the Wisps. And there we are back to Roseanne's Will of the Worcester again. Uh, maybe there's a connection there after all, who knows? Uh, I must thank you both so much for taking the time to, to come on and chat. It's, it's a fascinating subject and one that I hope, people who weren't that familiar with will go off and look into some more because there are some great stories and great things to find there. Um, what's next for you both? Tiff, what are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm currently doing comic book covers right now. Um, not particularly folklore related, unfortunately, but um, uh, Asher and I have been in talks to uh, continue the Anna O'Brien project. So uh, yeah. Excellent. And if people want to have a look at the work that you do and find out more about you and uh, the things that you produce, where should they go for that? Um, I mainly inhabit uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's just at normal at my name. Uh, uh, there's also my website. <laughs> uh, I've got my internet footprint fairly pared down at the moment, so... Excellent. Well, Tiffany, what is what is your name in case people have forgotten? <laughs> Tiffany Terrell. <laughs> I will two R's, two L's. <laughs> I will put a link in the show notes to the okay. uh, the places on the internet where you would like people to go and see. Yes, your... yes, please. Uh, and Asher, links in in the in the description. Yes, absolutely. Asher, what about you? Uh, I continue to work as a freelance journalist. Um, I have at least one uh, I, I have i have a, a sort of like detailed synopsis of an anna o'brien novel worked out that i hope to get to at some point this year because it's not like i'm going anywhere um and uh in addition to that 
uh, I continue to, my work continues to appear in places like, uh, occasionally like the New York Times, Audubon, other places like that. You can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Osher underscore Elbine, uh, or at my website, which is OsherElbine.com, which is pretty regularly updated with um, mostly my nonfiction work, but I, I put fiction stuff up as, up there as well. Excellent. Again, I will link to those for people so that they can follow the links directly either from the Folklore Podcast website or from the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Uh, and finally, as uh, sometimes happens when we do these episodes and people listen to them and go, oh, I must go and read that now because I was not aware of this book. Where would you like people to go and get a copy of Ghost Days that will be most beneficial to you as authors and illustrators? Uh, speaking personally, um, if you want to benefit me the most, you can go ahead and get it off of Amazon. If you would like your dollars to go more toward Tiffany's art, you should get them. Well, Tiffany can tell you where you should get them from her. I have a store link on my website, tiffanycherill.com. Well, there we go. If you are a keen Amazon user, is it available as a Kindle book as well? Or just... It is. Yes. Actually, actually to that, thank you for bringing that up. If you want a digital version of it um it is also available via gumroad um which means you can buy it for three dollars or pay what you want and also uh you won't have to give money to amazon who is evil (laughs) i i would i would just balance that by saying that uh, many retailers are available uh people have their own shopping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not alas for ghost days because it is a self-published book but um yes absolutely yes <laughs> uh, next, well, next one hopefully you, will be different wherever your personal shopping choices are please follow them and do get a copy of the book because it is uh yes. absolutely worth it uh asha tiffany thank you both so much for taking the time thank you so much for having us thank you it's been a pleasure My thanks to Asher and Tiffany for talking about their book and the folklore behind it. Do seek out a copy if this subject interests you. It is a great read and the illustrations are just wonderful. We'll hear some of chapter one in a moment. Don't forget that we're putting out an episode every week throughout September. If you'd like to see and hear more content from the podcast every month, then please remember that it is only your support of the show on Patreon or donations via the website, which make the whole project possible. We are so grateful for every bit of support, no matter how small. Our next goal is very close on Patreon now, and hitting that will mean an increase in the frequency of content permanently. Head over to www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast to help us. Don't forget, you'll also get bonus content, discounts from lectures and the folklore shop, and more. If you can't help this way, or through a donation on the website, then do please give us a good review on your podcast app, or even just share our episodes on social media. Every interaction is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Next week you'll be able to hear an interview with TV impressionist, actor and space enthusiast John Culshaw and UFO expert Dr David Clark about the forthcoming re-release of the Usborne classic book All About UFOs. In the meantime, here is Tracy Norman narrating the first part of Asher and Tiffany's book, Ghost Days. Thanks for listening.
See you next time. The Wampus Mask, 1900. The day before she made the trade, Anna O'Brien woke to an empty cabin and an empty bed. She'd surfaced hard from strange dreams of black lakes deep under the stone, surfaced and reached out to find him gone, with only rumpled, clammy bedding in his place. A fading whisper of warmth on the mattress. Nothing more. It wasn't the first time she'd risen to find herself alone. In the year since they'd been married, Tom had often left before sunrise, sliding out carefully so as not to wake her. She'd do the things that needed doing, any of a hundred tasks to keep the home place running: grind cornmeal, mend clothing, haul water up from the cold creek when the rain didn't come. Tom would return by late afternoon. Loping down out of the trees in his broad-brimmed hat, with a brace of rabbits or a possum in his hand, sometimes he came back the next day, and sometimes he came back with nothing. He always came back. But that morning, Anna felt a strange disquiet. A faint glow crept through the cracks in the shutters, the trees whispering outside. Cool air prickled on her skin. She lay a while, a raw-boned, dark-haired girl staring at the threadbare pillow, brow furrowed as she tried to work out what was wrong. There was nothing she could put her finger on, nothing definite. Just her heart beating sluggishly in her chest, just the rustling of distant leaves, the morning hush, and the empty bed. Anna blew a wisp of hair out of her face, hauling herself up. She slipped on a gingham dress and opened the shutters. Soft light flowing in over the hanging quilt and table, the stone chimney, the log walls packed with mud and grass to keep out the weather. Stripping the mattress, she shook out the linens and the wedding quilt, folding them up with the washing. She was just scraping a bit of preserve on some cold cornbread, when she heard the crunch of footsteps on the path. Morning, morning, Anna called. Opening the door, Millie's tired face peered up at her from the edge of the narrow plot. Her blonde hair tousled by the walk, a small burlap sack under her arm. Come in. The other woman came up to the porch, brushing the twigs off her dress before she swept inside. Where's Tom at? Hunting. Well, I just come up to bring you all that flour, and I wanted to see if you got any meat left over you can spare. John ain't shot a thing in two weeks, and he's getting stormy about it. Right stormy. So I thought I might cook him something special. Anna went up on tiptoes to look at the top of the cupboard, pulling out a jar of cured meat. We still got a bit of that bear Tom shot a while back. That'd be nice, Millie said. Anna passed it over. She bobbed on her feet a moment, unsure. You got Clarabel minding the baby. Time to sit a spell. Millie shot her a surprised look, but she set the flour sack down on the wooden tabletop by the cupboard, pulled out a stool, and sat, crossing her legs under her plaid dress. Just a spell, thank you. I guess you heard about Virgil. Anna hadn't. A welter of O'Briens lived down the little valley and along the neighbouring branches, all of them Tom's people. 
all of them woven together in a wall of talk and gossip and past experience, she had no idea how to climb. Nor had many been inclined to come up to the top of the holler, where their homes squeezed up on the last narrow strip of good land, and the chestnuts and ash trees closed in beyond. Millie O'Brien was the only one to look in every now and then, and Anna was always quietly pleased to see her. She filled the cabin up. They sat a while nibbling on cornbread, Millie catching her up on the news. Virgil, Tom's second cousin, didn't she recall him? had cursed the stone soil and walked off his plot, taking his family and going down to distant Madisonville to cut trees, part of a steady trickle of people leaving the neighbouring valleys. Sarah O'Brien was in a family way again, her fourth. A holy roller had come into the holler to preach God and damn fiddle music, damn the play parties for leading young people into dancing, and wasn't that just nonsense? Somewhere down in the foothills... Companies bought up big tracts, put people living there on the lease or ran them out. Hard times coming for some. Think it'll come up here? Anna said. Don't reckon it will, Millie said, waving a hand. High up the mountain as we are. Where's Tom find such hunting, anyhow? He's got some luck, that man. Anna ducked her head, smiling. Up the cliffs? Says there's still good game up that way. Nora better not hear that. John said he might head up that way, and she looked like she was fixing to tell him to go cut her a switch. Can you imagine? He'd do it too, Millie said. She rose and stretched, tucking the jar under her arm. I'd best be on my way. Thanks for the meat. And John thanks you right well too. Or he will. Millie. Anna opened the door for her and paused. You ever get a bad feeling when John goes out? Oh, he takes his rifle and bag down and I just worry sick, Millie said. But then, I always do. So I guess I'm used to it by now. Take care, dear. She sat on the porch a while after Millie left, staring out into the ash and chestnut trees, listening to the birds flitting among the heavy boughs. Ridgelines swept out beyond the narrow valley, green quilts shifting under the turning clouds. Smears of rain drifted on the horizon. On the mountainside, sandstone cliffs loomed grey and crumbling above the summer canopies. Tom was up there now, more likely than not, stealing along the base of the rocks, stopping to examine sign, or to pocket soft lead bullets left over from bushwhackers during the war. There were plenty of those, he told her once, and other things too, arrowheads and markings deep in the rock crevasses, and sometimes bones thrown down in the gullies, surrounded by faded blue cloth. Millie might worry, but Anna seldom did. There was too much to be done, a wedded rhythm of hard work, and Tom at the centre of it. She loved him with a desperate hunger, the steadiness of him, the crookedness of his expression, the flowers and bullets he brought her from the trees, the scratch of his beard on her cheek. If she was sometimes lonely, if their food often ran low, if she often clung tightly to him at night, feeling the bellows working of his breath, that was life. She missed him sometimes when he was out in the forest, but she did not worry about him. 
and yet. Anna shook her head. Standing, she fetched the broom and swept the cabin floor, losing herself in the motion of the bristles, working back and forth over the floorboards, sweeping it as clean as it had ever been. When she finished, she looked out the open door at the trees, and then swept again. Noon tilted into afternoon. Leaves rattled and spun in the yellow light. Anna took a bucket up to the seep above the little cornfield, balancing on fallen logs as she went. Spongy wood and moss crumbled under her feet. When she returned, she set the bucket down on the porch and tried to do the washing. But the smell of him was all over it, a musky note against the wood smoke and sweet goldenrod on the breeze, and for a moment she was lost, staring out into the woods. Being a fool, she said to herself. He's fine. He'll be back soon enough. So she scrubbed at the linens and clothing for a while, carried them back and hung them up on the line behind the cabin. Then she went back inside and set about baking a few loaves of bread, kneading her frustration out in the dough before putting it aside to let it rise. But it did not rise. The sun dropped toward the rocky cliffs and the blue-green gloom filtered through the tree trunks. Anna began to pace in circles around the cabin, going out onto the porch to look out into the darkening forest, her dress rustling against her legs. The birds outside had been quiet, strangely so. Once or twice, she thought she heard distant gunshots, carried down the mountainside by the wind. But they were faint and gone before she could be sure. She lit a pair of lanterns and hung them in the windows, before going out to the woodpile and pulling out a pair of small logs. The ghostly shapes of the washing shuddered on the line as she closed the door. She built a little fire in the stone hearth and sat back on the bed, blowing out a heavy breath, her foot tapping, staring at the window at the dusk. Something oppressive and tight spread itself in the space behind her eyes. Something howled, desperate and miserable in the dark. All at once, the nervous energy coiling inside Anna exploded outward, and she darted toward the door, her hand closing over a kitchen knife as she went. Snatching a lantern, she tore the door open. Tree trunks and twigs shone in the flickering light, the rasping calls of tree frogs echoing through the gloom. Brush crackled in the forest. Anna's knuckles strained on the lantern handle. What was she doing? She should go inside now, lock the door and sit by the fire, let whatever it was pass. But her legs were locked in place, there on the threshold. She squinted out into the dark, the crack of branches growing louder, louder. It exploded out of the woods, pale and staring, its mouth stretched wide, arms tearing at its own flesh. Anna yelped in surprise and jumped back, holding up the knife, in time to see it trip over the side of the porch and fall heavily against the boards. It lay there shivering and twitching and looked up at her with wide eyes that rolled in their sockets like those of a panicked horse. Eyes she knew. Tom? she whispered. Her husband jerked at the sound of her voice. Blood streamed from the cuts in his arms and chest, black in the shaking lantern light.
His clothing was in tatters, his prized hat missing, the hunting jacket ripped to shreds. His mouth worked soundlessly, and as Anna stared down at him, she realised he was trying, and failing, to scream.